What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622. Simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff chwine.com slash T-H-O-M, or text the word wine, W-I-N-E, text the word wine to 511-511, and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three-bottle order. So text wine to 511-511, Cameron Hughes Wine, exceptional value, extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Medea Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink and Global Exchange. Her latest book, Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection. Uh, CodePink.org, of course, the website, globalexchange.org. And you can tweet her at Medea Benjamin. Medea, welcome back to the program. 
Nice to be on with you. Great, thank you. You just came out with, uh, Code Pink just came out with a 39-page report titled War Profiteers, the U.S. War Machine, and the Arming of Repressive Regimes. Given that this is the 9-11 anniversary, could we start out with the connection between the Saudis and 9-11 and the American response to 9-11 and how it has changed our relationship with Saudi Arabia and our relationship with the Middle East in the, what, 17 years since then? Yes, well, as your listeners might recall, 15 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. There were uh, was a very large group of Saudis who were whisked away out of the United States back to Saudi Arabia before commercial planes were even flying after 9-11 attacks. Uh, then, despite the fact that the Saudis have been the perpetrators of this Wahhabist ideology, the U.S. has maintained a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia. The Obama administration had a very close relationship, selling over $100 billion in weapons to the Saudis. And then, of course, Trump came in and made that embrace even a more tightly knit one. And when the Trump administration announced its Muslim ban, it did not include Saudi Arabia, but included countries like Iran that had nothing to do with 9-11. So this insidious relationship the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia is an important one to recall on 9-11 and to understand that it's all about oil, profits, uh, weapon sales, money, money, money. Yeah, it, it certainly seems so. You know, we got a lot of misinformation about 9-11. One of the most important, I think, was when Cindy Sheehan testified before Congress, before John Conyers' committee back in the day. And uh, she had learned, and I guess we all had learned, it was not a secret, that before he was even running for president in 1999, when uh, George Bush's family had hired Mickey Herskowitz to write, or ghostwrite, George, George W. Bush's autobiography, A Charge to Keep, Mickey Herskowitz had recorded about 100 hours of tape, and this is what Cindy Sheehan had to tell us about what we learned from that. In interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then-Governor George Bush stated, One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. So here we have, two years before 9-11, George W. Bush saying if he has an excuse to invade Iraq, he's going to do it. Did Iraq have anything at all to do with 9-11? Well, Iraq had nothing at all to do with 9-11. It was a desire by the Project for a New American Centuries and the neocons to invade Iraq. This was a perfect excuse for it. And as we say in this report that we just put out, it's a tragic irony that 9-11 was really a boost to the weapons industry as well. So it was an invasion predetermined, preordained, and 9-11 was really the opening for such an invasion with the disastrous results that we should really contemplate today when we think about where did 9-11 lead us with the U.S. still involved in Afghanistan after, well, now almost 17 years. But what has happened Oh, in Afghanistan, we should know that even now the Taliban controls large swaths of Afghanistan, so certainly no wins there. 
and in Iraq, the terrible devastation that continues to be inflicted on the people of Iraq with an unstable government, with not only al-Qaeda growing, but uh, ISIS and the spread of ISIS uh, throughout the region. So it is important to remember that 9-11 was an excuse for the invasion of Iraq that has had such horrific consequences for the entire region. We're talking to Medea Benjamin. Her book, Kingdom of the Unjust, is absolute must-reading about Saudi Arabia. And Code Pink, which she co-founded, just put out this new 39-page report, War Profiteers, the U.S. War Machine. Medea, before we get to that, and I do want to get to that, before we do that, I'm curious your thoughts on what we should be most vigilant about if there was another 9-11 style attack or disaster, not necessarily the same form, airplanes hitting towers, but something that kills thousands of Americans in the name of a terrorist organization, with Donald Trump in office, what would you anticipate he might do and that we should be concerned about? Well, certainly it would lead to a tremendous crackdown on our free speech rights, which we're already seeing in state after state where they're implementing these terrible penalties for people who are activists, like environmental activists. We see this kind of backlash against people who are working around the Israel-Palestine issue. So say goodbye to the free speech rights we have left, to the ability to choose places where we want to protest because it will be protest pens, I would say rounding up of people who are dissenters. And then in terms of what it would mean for another excuse to invade abroad, I would think they would find a way to blame it on Iran because we really are in a situation now where the Trump administration could use another war to distract from the domestic woes. And they have been focusing on Iran as the greatest state sponsor of terror, the greatest threat to the United States and the region. So I think some kind of attack would somehow be blamed on Iran and would be an excuse to start a war there. Yeah, remarkable. Medea, tell us the main conclusions from this new report that Code Pink just put out. So the report looks at the top five weapons manufacturers, which are Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Boeing, and looks at how much of our tax dollars in the case of the, quote, giveaway of weapons to countries like Israel and Egypt and the sale of weapons in the case of Saudi Arabia and what this has meant for the bottom line of the weapons industry. We took heart at the fact that one of the rare times that the mainstream media talked about who manufactures these weapons was on August 9th after the horrendous attack in Yemen by a Saudi bombing of a school bus that left 40 children dead. And CNN put out a graphic that showed that the weapons came from Lockheed Martin, but they also put out a graphic that showed other killings of large numbers of civilians in Yemen and traced them to the weapons with, for example, Raytheon and General Dynamics. And we thought that was a, the ones that the Saudis are using against the people of Yemen. These have an origin, and their origin are U.S. companies. And these companies are considered great patriotic companies, and their CEOs are asked to speak at big gatherings to show their civic duties and how they are such great citizens like the woman who has broken the glass ceiling in the weapons industry, the CEO of Lockheed Martin, Marilyn Houston, who is a mother, 
and prides herself on all the things she does for children in the community. And we want to point out that the $20 million plus that she is making every year has blood on it, unlike the black ink in the bottom line for the profits of the company and how these companies' profits have skyrocketed thanks to the endless war. With the case of Lockheed Martin, for example, going from 31 billion to 41 billion to 51 billion last year, and how we have to do what the Pope has done, which is call these companies merchants of death, to not remain silent in the face of how they are making their profits. And we attach it to a campaign called Divest from the War Machine, where we ask people to join us in doing just what the environmentalists have been doing, which is taking money out of the fossil fuel industry. We have to take our money out of the weapons industry. Yeah, very well said. People can find the report, I'm assuming, at codepink.org. That's right. Okay. Medea Benjamin, check out her book, Kingdom of the Unjust. Codepink.org is the website. And, of course, you can tweet her at Medea Benjamin. It's 18 minutes past the hour. Thank you, Medea. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Always Always great talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What are you most concerned Donald Trump might do if he had another 9-11, quote, opportunity, to paraphrase George Bush? Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, thanks for listening on the app. What's up? If, if we knew what was going to happen afterwards, what would we have done differently if we had the foresight? Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to achieve right now by you know, raising this topic and this question. I, you know, George W. Bush had already decided that if he had an international crisis that was sufficient to uh, allow him to lie us into a war with Iraq, he was going to take that opportunity. And 9-11 presented him with that opportunity. The project for New America Century, excuse me, back in 98, during the Bill Clinton presidency, had said it's time to invade Iraq. And Jeb Bush signed that document, along with Wolfowitz and, and uh, you know, a whole bunch of others who ended up in the Bush administration. And George had not, but his brother certainly had. And, and so we were kind of warned. We were forewarned what they were up to. I think what we're being forewarned about right now that they're up to is that they want to invade Iran. And what I think most Americans don't realize is that invading Iran is a whole different thing than invading Iraq. Iran is far more developed, far more sophisticated, far more advanced, far more powerful. They have a, a, a better and bigger military. They have extraordinary cyber capabilities. And strategically, unlike Iraq, Iraq could do very little to hurt the United States, which is why George W. Bush had to make up the lie that they were coming up with weapons of mass destruction that could be smuggled into New York City and set off. Iran, all they have to do is cut off the oil at the Straits of Hormuz, and the entire world economy, including ours, falls to its knees, and our economy gets in real bad shape real fast because there's so much debt out there. We've been talking about this for some time. So that's, that's my guess, Jared, is that if there is an attack on the United States of any sort, Trump will use this as an excuse to get us in a war with Iran. Um, I also believe that they will enact martial law 
and uh, elections will be suspended. Pretty much any anti-war protesters will be rounded up. Yeah, these are all the things that we worried that George W. Bush might do that he didn't do. He had a little more respect for American institutions, and he had people around him who were rational. Trump has no respect for American institutions, and the people around him obviously are irrational or they wouldn't be around him. Jared, thank you for the call. I, I Spot on. I, I share your concerns. Tom Harmon here with you, and we're contemplating how different the world would be if George W. Bush had responded to the terror attacks by, the, this was not a country, this was not Pearl Harbor, this was not Japan attacking us, this was not Afghanistan attacking us, it certainly wasn't Iraq attacking us. There is some evidence that some people in Saudi Arabia were behind this attack, but I don't think it was even the Saudi government itself attacking us although they largely supported the Wahhabists and supported Al-Qaeda um, and bin Laden, you know, I, I don't think that they specifically knew that this was going to happen. They would have realized how much blowback would come to them as a result of it. So had George W. Bush simply said, this is a crime, how different might the world be, number one? And number two, you know, the CIA finally, I mean, they were, you know, they, they'd gotten warnings from the Russians, from the Israelis, from the British, from the French, um, I believe from the Germans, I could be wrong, uh, the, the major intelligence service, the Australians, major intelligence services around the world had warned the, the Bush administration that 9-11 was coming. And, and finally, the CIA said, okay, that's it. He is not taking us seriously. We've got to do something. They flew an analyst down from Washington, D.C. to Crawford, Texas, all by himself. He meets with George W. Bush on the front porch of his house and says, here's your presidential da daily briefing, sir. And it's headlined, Bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. And George W. Bush reads it, which is more than Donald Trump does, reads it, hands it back to him and says, and pats him on the leg and says, okay, son, you covered your ass. Now you can go back to D.C. And then did nothing. Well, actually, he did something. He extended his vacation for another month. Longest vacation in the history of the American presidency. He was afraid to go back to D.C. at that point because he knew that something terrible was going to happen. I don't think he knew it was going to be planes flying into buildings. I think he thought it was going to be something like a Tim McVeigh truck bomb, but he knew something terrible was going to happen. And so what did he do? He went to his brother's state. I mean, he waited for another few weeks. Still nothing happened. So finally he said, OK, screw it. I, I got to get out of Texas. It's starting to look weird, like I'm hiding here. And so he went to Florida where his brother locked down the state and there were no you know, clear threats in Florida. And uh, Jeb Bush declared a state of emergency and George is sitting in the classroom reading My Pet Goat when 9-11 happens. And for seven long minutes, he's sitting there going, holy crap, I should have listened to Bill Clinton. It's really pretty breathtaking when you think about it. Will, watching us on YouTube in Broomfields, Colorado. Hey, Will, what's up? Hey, Tom. What I think about most is people like my brother. On 9-11, my kids and I were scared to death that my brother, a Green Beret, is going to go and get killed because of this global war on terror. And he went over there. He, he wanted to be a soldier from the time he knew what a soldier was. And people like George W. Bush and Cheney, they cut the VA budget. They, they cut taxes. They, they made billionaires out of... Eric Prince and Blackwater and Halliburton. My brother, two tours in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. 
30 days in a hospital for PTSD, a broken bone in his neck. And last two weeks ago, his heart gave out. My brother just died at the age of 50. I'm so sorry. Leaving, an eight, leaving a 10-year-old daughter, an 8-year-old daughter, and a widowed wife. And, and I just want to say, um, I was always afraid that 9-11 and the warmongers in the White House would kill him. And it just took him 17 years to do it. I'm so sorry to hear that, Will. What was your brother's name? Jeff. Jeff. I, 28 I, years in the Army. Yeah. And they took his whole life. I'm so sorry. This is, uh, Will, thank you for the call. Um, and, and uh, you know, my condolences to you and your family. And whew, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Look at how we respond when an American dies as a result of Bush's lies. Can you imagine how an Afghan or an Iraqi, an Afghani or an, or an Iraqi respond because, you know, again, knowing that Bush lied, knowing that Iraq had nothing to do with the war, knowing that in Afghanistan, uh, uh, Mr. Mullah Omar had offered to arrest bin Laden and give him to the United States if we wouldn't attack the country. And George Bush said, no, I want to have a war. It's good for my presidency. Can you imagine how these people feel as well? This is just terrible. Tom Harbin here with you. Talk media for the sane among us. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's on your mind today? Um, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I'm uh, an ex-air traffic controller. I used to work up at uh, Boston Center in uh, Nashville, New Hampshire. My sense is that you've probably driven by it a couple of times. Oh, yeah. And I serve as a, um, as a surrogate whistleblower for air traffic controllers who were on duty on 9-11. Mm -hmm. And um, no names or anything like that. And have been in a couple of books here and there, and I don't want to discuss the particular uh, and it cut DVD, video, and film, and stuff like that. Uh, I really don't want to discuss the points about 9/11 because your conversation is broad-shouldered enough to to keep everything thoughtful and open, and uh, the truth is out there and people can find it. But I really want to talk about what is going on today and what we are talking about today as a society in comparison to what we stood up, I mean, the members of the 9-11 Truth Community for World Peace, what we stood up for just after 9-11. And we were criticized for seeking the truth, yet now everybody is seeking the truth. We mentioned that fascism is going to be on the way, disguised in patriotism and religiosity, and we were poo-pooed for that, and now we're talking about that beautifully. I'm so excited. We were talking about the comparison to the rise of Hitler and Nazism, and now that is a subject that is being considered and talked about. We were criticized that we were saying that we were militarizing our society by militarizing local police forces, and that's going on. We said 9-11 is going to lead to perpetual wars, and we were criticized for that. Yeah. We said the First and Fourth Amendments would, be, would come under attack. That has happened. There's a great pushback on that. And um, probably the biggest thing that we said of all is that 9-11 was going to be used to create and continue never-ending wars, and that the big kahuna was that the event was allowed in to reshape our enemy from the USSR, which you know with uh, Plan B um, um, was on the decline anyways. It had already collapsed, actually, at that USSR. point in time. What's that? It had already collapsed at that point in time. 
a decade yes, earlier. Tom. Yes, yes, it had Tom. And so, but so the Pentagon and our intelligence agency needed to create a new enemy, and it became um, Islam. Yeah, and the I, final two points I want to make is that a fellow colleague of yours, Peter Dale Scott, is responsible for one of these. Uh, and the rest of us are uh, the 9-11 Truth uh, for World Peace community have been very successful at getting the term false flag attacks well understood, talked about even in, in the oligarch media. And then uh, Peter Dale Scott has done some brilliant work on the deep state. I think the important thing to note here, it's not the attacks of 9-11 that provoked all this. It's Bush's response to it. It was the Republican administration's response to it. I really think that if Al Gore had been president, and certainly he was elected president in 2000, and thank you for the call, Robin. I, I really think if Al Gore had been president, our response probably would have been different, although Al Gore's vice president was Joe Lieberman, who was kind of, you know, philosophically and intellectually in the George W. Bush camp, a major war hawk. But uh, in any case, it happened. And now we can look back and say, wait a minute. You know, we're ready for this the next time this kind of thing happens. Uh, Scott in Missoula, Montana. Hey, Scott, what's on your mind today? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm a, a professional pilot, and I just kind of wanted to point out that after 9-11, literally the only civilian aircraft in the skies over this country were the Saudi corporate jets taking the Saudis out of the United States. And, right, with, uh, the, with the permission of the Bush administration. Exactly. And I mean, how does that even happen? You know, when you call up for a clearance, what do you do? Say, oh, I'm a, a Saudi citizen and I need to get out of here. I mean, how did that transpire? Well, it was all members of the bin Laden family and, and uh, the Bush family is very, you know, historically very close to that family. And so I'm guessing that, you know, George W. Bush was right at the center of that. Yeah. And just just the absurdity that all of our 911 first responders that couldn't get health care because of the lack of funding, we should have had the Saudis at least pay for that since most of the... Well, there's a lawsuit to that effect right now, but I think it's been blocked in the courts. Um, I know it had they had one minor victory with that, but I'm not sure where it's at right now. But yeah, excellent points all. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Well said. Noah in Redlands, California. Hey, Noah, what's up? Yes, I'm just calling. Uh, I was a soldier in uh, Afghanistan, and I used to teach counterinsurgency to the Afghan police. And one of the teaching tools that we used to use was called Situation Critical. It's a documentary by uh, National Geographic that talks about the war. And one of the main opponents who warned, uh, tried to warn the U.S. about the 9-11 attacks was a guy by the name of Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was assassinated two days prior to 9-11 by uh, some then Laden operatives who were disguised as journalists, who were, you know... Where was Massoud based? I, I'm recognizing that name. He was in uh, uh, Panjir province. Uh -huh. He's also in, called the Lion of Panjir. In Pakistan? He, uh, he was, no, Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, okay. Yes, he was uh, part of the Northern Alliance. I see. And his general under him was Rahim Dostum. And Dostum, I think, right now is the Secretary of Defense, I believe, of Afghanistan. Yeah, and Dostum at that time, wasn't, wasn't he also a major opium king? No. Okay. No, he had nothing to do with that. He was okay. in the northern part. The opium was in the south. In the, I see. In the, um, yeah, in the southern uh, province, the um, Helmand province. Right. But in the northern province, near the Badakhshan province and all that stuff, is near the Chinese border. And one of the things about Afghanistan that the Chinese knows, and probably a lot, a lot of other operatives, is that they have a large supply of lithium. 
And that's, that's where right. you can make the lithium batteries for the electric cars and all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, that's one of the things that we used to teach, you know, in, uh, to the Afghan police. And they didn't even know about it. They didn't even know, know about their own history. And, and wow. That's, that's, that's remarkable. And so thank you very much for the call and thanks for the heads up. That, you know, I've heard those names and, you know, but it's been a lot of years since this stuff was in the news. The history of 9-11 is in some ways complex and tangled and in some ways very, very simple. This was the result of actions that George Herbert Walker Bush took back when he, back when he went after, uh, uh, you know, Kuwait. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or more correctly, back when he told Saddam Hussein, yeah, no problem if you take Kuwait, and then Hussein did, and then the war started, and then it got worse. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is ChooseMuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer and you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool and meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now and I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting... 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at ChooseMuse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. Vince in New York City watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Vince, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you today? I'm, I'm well. What's on your mind? Good. I just really wanted to make an observation uh, connecting um, what you're talking about with 9-11 and Bush, Cheney, and Condoleezza Rice and Brett Kavanaugh. Yep. During one of the days of um, his hearings, it was sort of interesting to see Condoleezza Rice positioned strategically right behind him. So all you saw was his face and her face. Right. And clearly there's, you know, the, the idea of uh, um, her supporting him in that shot all day. 
So I just wanted to make that observation. Okay, thank you. Very, very well made. And and she was replacing the white power guy. And, you know, yesterday, I don't know if you saw it on my Twitter feed, but uh, Roger Stone was in Portland and or in somewhere in Washington state and was doing the OK sign, the white power sign with with a whole bunch of Proud Boys. Mm. It's bizarre. The other thing about Condoleezza Rice was in the early days of this administration, she may have been promoting a book of hers, but she was on all of the cable cable TV news. And I remember her telling everybody that we just needed to put the Russia thing behind us and it didn't matter. Hmm. I guess that's now the official Republican line. Uh, Remarkable. Vince, thanks for the call. Good to hear from you. Jacob in Baltimore, Maryland, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Jacob, what's up? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I wanted to go back to, you know, a lot of people have been talking about, including yourself, about the, you know, war in Afghanistan and how it has been dragging on. We've been, you know, there for 17 years now, I think it is, uh, or maybe not quite, but close in. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are saying we're never going to win the war. Uh, and I agree, you know, that, but... And I, you know, am not for American imperialism, but I just think that a lot of people are misunderstanding why we're actually in Afghanistan. That we're not there to fight the Taliban in Afghanistan anymore. No, in fact, um, we're negotiating and, with the Taliban right now. Right. Uh, as Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, uh, who was the uh, chief of staff for uh, uh, Colin Powell during the Bush years, points out, we're actually in uh, Afghanistan right now because we need to have, you know, from an American empire perspective, we need to have a forward position where we can camp out our troops and have a position where we can strike immediately with hard power against China and its Silk Road initiative. And if we withdraw from Afghanistan, we lose that forward-placing foothold, which doesn't allow us to, you know, intervene in the area nearly as quickly, and we lose massive amounts of influence geopolitically. So we're just, I mean, the plan is, you know, to just never leave. And it's because we want to have a forward position where we can exert, you know, hard power if necessary over, uh, you know, increasingly expanding China. I think there's one other thing you're missing here, Jacob, and that is that there was a survey done of the mineral wealth of Afghanistan, and they concluded that there was over a trillion dollars worth a million of mineral wealth in that country that could be extracted, and that at the top of that list in terms of value to American industry was lithium and other rare earth metals that could be used for advanced batteries and advanced, uh, you know, electronics. And, uh, you know, that that added a big, uh, you know, a big boost to, hey, you know, maybe we should be going after Afghanistan or stay yeah, in I Afghanistan. I totally agree that that report. Yeah, I also read that report. Um, it was like so a I year or so ago that came out. Obviously, a massive amount of corporate, you know, because, you know, the corporations and the imperialist, uh, you know, tendencies of America and the military industrial complex, obviously, often their interests become intertwined. So I agree with you that both of those reasons, but I'm saying even without the mineral wealth, which I agree is an extra reason for them to stand there and actually try to control large amounts of territory. But we're never going to give up those bases and that forward position just because, the, you know, from the perspective of the military, their perspective is that they don't want to give up that forward position sure. to act you know, on China. Well, so Afghanistan is, is one of the most strategic 
positions in the Middle East. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Jacob, thank you for the call. I mean, you know, once again, it just reminds us how different the world would be if George W. Bush had not lied us into a war in Iraq and had taken the offer of Mullah Omar to arrest bin Laden and turn him over to a third party for trial. And that would have been the end of that, right? And we could have had closure for the 9-11 families. Daniel in Santa Ana, listening on KPFK. Hey, Daniel. Hey, hey, uh, Tom. Uh, first of all, um, I, I have a concept that is phenomenal. I, I really want you to address this. I've never heard it addressed. I am a KPFK uh, shareholder, and I ho- hope everybody listens to you and uses the expression shareholder because I own a stock of KPFK, and I'm glad that you're in it. Um, Thank you. My concept, though, is I don't really think that Gore actually wanted to be president. And the reason why was because he picked the most uncharismatic person imaginable to be his running mate. Lieberman could carry no state. Lieberman brought nothing to the table, and he was the closest thing to a Republican that was going and could garner no actual support from anyone. And I I think it's it's almost like when Kennedy ran uh, against Carter, where I really don't think he wanted to be president. He just ran because people wanted him to. I honestly don't think that uh, Gore wanted to to be president and um, wanted your... I think what, what I think the mistake that Al Gore made was listening to uh, neoconservative and uh, bizarre, for lack of a better word, DLC uh, uh, consultants. And, you know, the, the, the and, and somebody or maybe he had a personal relationship with Joe Lieberman. But I, I agree with you that the Lieberman choice was a disaster and that if Al Gore had picked somebody reasonable as his vice president, uh, instead of uh, Lieberman, that that uh, it would they would have had to suppress a lot more votes in Florida to to have the Supreme Court steal the election on behalf of George W. Bush. I'll give you that. I I'm, I'm totally with you. But I think that you know I I, I talked with Al Gore uh, after after this all happened, and he was he was crushed. He was he was devastated by it. I I am convinced that he actually did want to be president. I think that uh, he's he, there's a long line of Democratic presidential wannabes whose, whose hopes and, and aspirations were destroyed by the idiot consultants that these people continue to hire. Uh, Daniel, thank you for the call. Mike in Washington State, listening on KBCS. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, 9-11, I am a uh, plain liberal. I never would have voted for Republican in my life. But I think that... Uh, 9-11 was a failure of the security experts in this country and politicians. There never, it never should have happened. Uh, there was that plane that was hijacked in France in, in early 90s, uh, 93, I think. And the French realized that they were going to use that as a bomb, and they went in and killed all the hijackers. And after that, there were locks on the cockpit doors of every airplane in France. And that also was a standard procedure in uh, Israel. Yeah, it had been in Israel from from the very beginning, Mike. From, from those, from We've that. got to turn up the volume on the on the hybrid here. Rocks on those cockpit doors, and 9/11 would never have happened. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And Israel had always had that, and and the Europeans had that after the 80s. Actually, it was in the 70s when there were all those hijackings to Cuba here in the United States. And uh, Congress prepared, Teddy Kennedy was an advocate for this, prepared legislation to require the hardening of the cockpit doors uh, back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. 
And the airline industry made major donations to a bunch of Republicans who fought that back and and basically said, no, we're not, you know, it ain't going to happen. We're not going to have this this going on. And as a result of that, you know, we had 9-11. I mean, there was, it was very easy to hijack a plane in the United States uniquely. Pretty much every, every place else in the world had done it. And the airline industry wanted to, you know, oppose this because it would have cost them a couple hundred thousand dollars per plane to set it up. And they didn't want the expense, which is just absurd. So these guys just walked through this hole in our security. Mike, spot on. Thanks for the call. Nathan in Dallas, Texas, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Nathan, what's up? Yeah, Tom, it's 9-11. There's always this talk about 3,000 people that died. That was 17 years ago. One year ago, there was a hurricane. 3,000 Puerto Ricans are dead. Not from hijackers, but from negligence, from the man at the top. Where's that memorial? So 3,000 deaths that have happened under the Trump because of Trump's negligence. Yeah, spot on, Nathan. And and this is something that deserves more attention, too. And just to recap, I think one of the most important clips from 9-11 that we need to remember and we need to constantly revisit is uh, Sidney Sheehan testifying before John Conyers' committee that was looking into what led up to 9-11. We know Sandy Berger on this program, on this very program, Bill Clinton's national security advisor, Sandy Berger, told explicitly to George W. Bush's national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice, bin Laden is coming to get you. This was in December and early January of 2000 and 2001, after uh, George W. Bush was elected. The previous administration, the Clinton administration, had been for several years aware of the fact that bin Laden was planning to strike the United States. They tried to do something about it. In the midst of his impeachment hearings, Bill Clinton fired three cruise missiles into into bin Laden's camp in Afghanistan. At that point in time, bin Laden, about 20,000 people have been through the camp. There was an estimated 5,000, quote, hardcore al-Qaeda fighters hanging out with bin Laden. And that was it. In the entire world, there were 5,000 members of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda today, today is larger than it has ever been. It is stronger than it has ever been because of the way George W. Bush reacted to this. He could have said to the world, we are the victims of an infamous crime. This guy is not a nation. He doesn't represent a nation. He is a criminal and a madman using the Saudi interpretation of Islam, this Wahhabist interpretation of Islam, he was a Saudi citizen himself, bin Laden, using this interpretation of Islam to justify the murder of roughly 3,000 American citizens, not to mention a lot of other people. And that's wrong. It's an insult to Islam. It's an insult to Saudi Arabia. It's an insult to the whole thing. And therefore, I, George W. Bush, following 9-11, I am asking the world community to join me and Interpol to join me in tracking down these people around the world using police action. And I am taking the offer that Mullah Omar made to me that he will arrest bin Laden and turn him over to a third country for trial. We are going to do that. We're going to have a trial of this criminal and we're going to put this behind us. If that had been how George W. Bush responded to 9-11, 
Bin Laden would have been put on trial. He would have been found guilty. Bin Laden's people would have been arrested by the government of Afghanistan and others associated with them. At that, after 9-11, the Taliban had turned completely against bin Laden and al-Qaeda. We had an opportunity to clean this whole thing up. And by the way, we weren't the only country to have been attacked by terrorists and to respond in the way that I'm suggesting. In the, back in the 80s, you had Aldo Moro, the former prime minister of Italy, was kidnapped by red brigades and died in the trunk of the car. They kidnapped him. I believe he suffocated. I don't recall exactly how he died, but he died. In the gray hand, you had this group in, in Germany that was blowing things up. You had, obviously, the IRA in the UK, in, in England. The IRA was active there. They, they damn near killed Margaret Thatcher. They blew up number 10 Downing Street, or the building next door to it. So terrorism was nothing new. And the response of civilized countries to the terrorism wasn't, you know, when the IRA tried to blow up number 10 Downing Street, the British didn't say, oh, we're going to declare war on Ireland. You know, it just, it just didn't happen. It was, we used police. But Bush didn't want to do that because starting back in 1999, he told his biographer if he had a chance to go to war, he was going to take it. And here it is. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, one of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. And that was two years before 9-11. That was before George W. Bush even announced that he was going to run for president. He wanted to have a war. He thought it would be politically helpful to him. And then you look at Donald Trump back in November of 2010, tweeting that he believed that Barack Obama was going to declare a war somewhere to, get him, to, to help him in the, in the midterm elections, which means Trump is thinking the same way that Bush was thinking, which means... We really need to be concerned. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high-tech. And yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary. And it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 
X chair. This chair comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code Tom, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. Contemplating how different the world would be. 9-11, the disaster that was the result of the Bush administration ignoring intelligence reports, not just from the CIA, but also from the foreign intelligence services, the Israelis, the Russians, the Brits, the French, uh, and others, I believe South Africa as well, and Australia. Um, and then once it happened, George W. Bush deciding that instead of arresting bin Laden, the guy who was the criminal behind this, and going you know, maybe to Pakistan or Indonesia, I, I forget where he was, and getting uh, Sheikh Mohammed and you know, the others who were involved. I mean, this, this should have been a police action, and ultimately it was by and large. Instead of doing that, he would rather blow up a couple of countries because he thought it would make it easier for him to get reelected in 2004 and thus in 2005 to privatize Social Security. And you recall, right after the 2004 election, Trump came out and he's, or excuse me, Bush came out and he said, I've got a lot of political capital here and I intend to spend it on privatizing Social Security. And then he went on, a tra- on, the, on the campaign trail in 2005, traveling around the country, pitching the idea of turning your Social Security over to the banks. And every speech he gave caused his popularity to go down. And so, you know, ultimately he abandoned the idea. The Republican Party abandoned the idea. Although Trump is now out saying, you know, those Democrats, they want to they want to destroy your Social Security and your Medicare. I mean, he actually is tweeting this and saying this in his speeches. The Democrats created Social Security. The Democrats created Medicare. And the Republicans said, oh, that's socialism. We can't have that. That's a terrible thing. That's socialism. Donald Trump is lying through his teeth about all this stuff. I mean, it's just breathtaking. Uday, or is it, am I saying that right in Bloomfield, New Jersey? Listen on Sirius XM. Hello, Tom. It's Uday. Uday. But I have gotten used to being called Uday. So, hi, and thank you for taking my call. Sure. What's um, up? I am a bit nervous. Uh, never been on the radio, but I believe I have a story to tell, especially with respect to 9-11 and the environmental contamination in the city. Okay. Um, I am an industrial hygienist, and that's what I do for a living. Uh, after 9-11, uh, the most prominent uh, uh, carcinogen, that being asbestos, that you have mentioned so very many times with respect to your father's ailment. Uh, there was a complete cover-up by New York City Department of Environmental Protection. Um, <clears throat> Under Rudy Giuliani. Precisely. I have, uh, and I, who knows to what extent the EPA was complicit in it. Um, All of the claims being made by all of the politicians uh, that there isn't a problem whatsoever uh, with respect to asbestos uh, were all false. Rumsfeld, if he ever told any truth, was when he made the statement, I believe on September 21st, it had not rained for a long time. He said on TV, and nobody can find the tape, he said, thank God it's going to rain and the asbestos cloud will settle down. 
Wow. So this is Rumsfeld. And I, but anyway, uh, I agree with him because I had seen asbestos debris all over uh, around ground zero. Mm. Uh, but my work that I did was particularly focused on mercury contamination. There was a wonderful book written by Juan Gonzalez uh, from uh, Amy Goodman's partner, right. and he was at Daily News at that time. He actually chronicled the amount of mercury that had been stored in the basement. Um, I forget exactly what the quantity was. This was so metallic he, mercury? I, I assumed that the mercury came from like fluorescent bulbs and things. There was actually a stash of metallic mercury in, in, in one of the towers? Why? According to, according to Juan, yes. I, that's a mystery mm -hmm. uh, which we don't know about. Um, so, yes, you're right. Um, fluorescent lamps, uh, copying machines, computer screens, uh, 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 your thermostat, God knows, uh, almost mercury is used so commonly, yeah. or was. Uh, so <clears throat> my uh, preliminary work was first challenged by the EPA, uh, and then uh, <clears throat> uh, there's, I'm forgetting the researcher's name, but he's at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn who has done a lot of work with mercury. Mm -hmm. EPA, uh, the professor from Medgar Evers, and many other people, uh, <clears throat> including Joel Kufferman from New York Environmental Law and Justice Project. Uh, so we walked around and we found concentrations which, according to uh, California Department of Health, uh, 300 nanograms is the uh, reference limit. And we found concentrations greater than that under people's bed and in people's pillows uh, around ground zero. Oh, my. And uh, just to add to this, there is a group uh, that makes mercury measuring devices out of Canada their name is Tekran. I might be mispronouncing it or uh, misremembering it. I didn't have any fun, so I was calling folks to um, see if they would donate us their equipment. And while talking to the folks at Tekran, this is what I remember being told by the fellow who answered my call, that there is a a fellow who works for U.S. EPA out of uh, Research Triangle Institute. Uh, Tekran had sent their equipment to this person. Uh, he studies uh, mercury distribution all over the world. Mm -hmm. And he was working at that time for USGS, and uh, I don't know what the equations were. But uh, they had confirmed presence of airborne mercury throughout lower uh, uh, ground zero in lower Manhattan. And uh, to offer some medical evidence, I had once done work for Sierra Club who were at 110 John Street. It's right next to ground zero. Mm -hmm. And the receptionist there, I will not mention her name, uh, <clears throat> She 
and her husband, who also worked downtown, had some constant health problems. And they were diagnosed by one physician as related to mercury exposure. Hmm. Wow. So, this is serious uh, stuff. I just wanted yeah. Uday, I, I, I need to I need to wrap this up. We've been talking for six minutes, which is unusually long. <laughs> Your point is that there was massive mercury contamination post 9-11, right? Yes. Yeah. OK. And thank you for giving me so much time. My pleasure. No, thank you very much. It's a compelling story and, and uh, you know, one that really uh, needs to be told. Um, this is this is uh, serious stuff. Barbara in Seattle listening on KBCS. Hey, Barbara, what's up? IFF. Which stands for? That's why 9/11 happened. They were uh, they were not allowed to mobilize the planes. Identification, friend or foe. Okay. Do you know that? I know that the there was there was there were exercises off the East Coast that had tied up many of the jet aircraft of I believe it was the National Guard that no, might have otherwise no, intercepted no. these have, planes. Is there anybody that has the records of uh, traffic controllers? I don't know. That's the most important question because I've I've I know a little bit about structural steel and all the other conspiracy theories. It's just like the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King. You just uh, set up people and things and then cut down any control over the people that you know will do the damage. Yeah, I, I get what you, Barbara, thank you. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm really, I don't think this is the time to get into uh, uh, theories about exactly why this happened beyond the obvious, um, you know, which is that Bush ignored warnings from multiple governments, from his own intelligence agency. He ignored a CIA analyst who flew all the way to Crawford, Texas to warn him. Or maybe he didn't ignore it. Maybe he just decided, you know, I don't want to be in D.C. when this happens. And he went to Florida instead, and we got 9-11. And then he responded to it in a way that has devastated the United States' standing around the world. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And Bush and his buddies exploited the 9-11 disaster to get the Patriot Act passed, which, had, you know, they'd been trying to push for years to get this thing to destroy our civil liberties as well. Zach in North Hollywood, California. Hey, Zach, what's up? Morning, Tom. Hey, Zach. Uh, you remember the old meme, uh, might is right, war is good, bomb them over there before they bomb us over here and all that. I remember variations of that during the Vietnam yeah, War. And that's the old guard rule. And I say that's all still was and still is born out of fearing the other instead yeah. of helping the other. You know, think of it. Bombing other countries decreases our security and increases the odds that we'll be attacked. Just imagine for a second and add up the revenue that's been spent on ordinance since 9-11. Take that number and imagine for a second if that had been spent on basic infrastructure. Say we go and build just a main street 
for someone. We could have rebuilt this entire country with the money we spent in Iraq, Afghanistan. And then, Zach, welcoming us, Zach, we could have rebuilt the United States. We've we have spent something on the order of two to three trillion dollars, and it's going to be five by the time we're all done. Uh, you know, paying for our veterans and everything else. Uh, on Iraq and Afghanistan. If George W. Bush hadn't lied us into two absolutely unnecessary wars, we could have rebuilt America. We could have trains that are traveling 300 miles an hour like they do in China. We could have uh, broadband for 30 bucks a month for everybody in the country like they do in Chattanooga or they do in France. I mean, so, we could have done so much if we had simply uh, done this. I, you know, I, yeah, spot on. Thanks a lot for the call. Cece in upstate New York. Hey, Cece, what's up? Hi, um, my husband was a fireman on 9-11. He was working that morning. Um, his part of the house, the ladder, was left to protect northern Manhattan, so he wasn't down there. But I thought he was. But that night he went down, and he spent, like, the next year on that pile. Wow. And two or three days in, Christine Todd Whitman said, the air is fine, the air is fine on television. And yeah, I played that clip in, uh, an hour or so ago, yeah. I'm glad it's still around. And I said, you do not take that mask off or I swear I'll kill you myself. And I used to always check that he wore his mask, and he did. And a lot of guys did it. And he ended up with asthma, but many of the men had horrible lung infections and died then. Yeah. And every week, every month, he gets the fireman's newsletter, and there's two or three more 9-11 deaths on it. So they absolutely lied from that woman's mouth the next year and you know there's no repercussions for them lying and it's just really disheartening because i don't know like he could still die from cancer it is 17 years out but we still don't know. Yeah, cancer can have a long gestation period. Yeah, Cece, this is, this is, you know, it was Rudy Giuliani and George W. Bush and Karl Rove who wanted to make sure that there was, you know, no perception of problem. You know, this, uh, in particular, Bush was worried that it was going to come out that he had been warned and, and repeatedly. I mean, the CIA was begging him to do something. He had been warned that this was coming. And, you know, so they were trying to cover that up as well. But uh, spot on. I'm so sorry to hear that, you know, your husband's friends are dying and that your husband has had some health problems. Uh, please give him our best and thank him for the for the work that he did. That's that's that is a brutal story. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom, not too much. Hey, I just want to say you by far have the best insight of any commentator on this on the uh, post 9-11, uh, you know, global war on terror thing. And um you know, I uh, have spent so much time in Afghanistan and Iraq that I could have bought a house at either in either country. But you, um, you know, I don't even think it's really that a priority to you. So I really enjoy what you, um, you know, you put out about it. Um, I just wanted to say there were three things during the Kavanaugh uh, hearings that really scared me. Mm -hmm. One is he said that, um, you know, it was it's the same old meme that 9-11 was the worst attack on America ever. Untrue. Uh, he also said that every day uh, was September 12th to George Bush. I think every day was September 12th to Brett Kavanaugh. And he also said that he won't answer a question about um, if a president can pardon themselves because it's a hypothetical. But Saddam Hussein pardoned himself. I mean, you know. Yeah. So um, I, I, I thought it was weird that he said every day is nine is uh, the, the September twelfth because on September twelfth George W. Bush was frantically hopscotching hop, hop, around the country on Air Force One 
trying to find a safe city where they where there you know no terrorists might be. I mean, it was it was bizarre. Did you remember that? Oh yeah, yeah, I remember clearly. I was at Fort Huachuca on September 11th, and I would just add that there's um, no way that. Um, you know, the, the liberal worldview and the, the conservative worldview are completely separate, all right? I'm not going to put a value judgment on either one, but if any um, Democrat had been president or any liberal, we would not be where we're at right yeah, now. I agree. I agree. Uh, Dave, thanks a lot for the call. George in Chicago. George, we just have 30 seconds to the end of the show. Uh, you want A quick point you want to make? Any discussion of 9-11 has to take into account Rudy Giuliani's corruption, dishonesty, and incompetence. Prior to 9-11, a committee of experts recommended that New York build a new uh, emergency command center in an outer borough underground. Giuliani refused because he wanted one he could walk to in Manhattan. Therefore, the, the command center was in the Twin Towers. It was destroyed. That's why Rudy was walking around the streets talking to New Yorkers and getting great media coverage, because he had no command center to go to thanks to his own dishonesty and incompetence. Thank you. Yeah, excellent points all. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. It's the only way it works is if you show up, get out there, get active tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.